1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Mem crash amplification attack took GitHub offline, but only briefly thanks to Akamai mitigation. Germany continues to fight off ongoing attacks on sensitive government networks, Germany hasn't said so, but everyone else sees Fancy Bear's paw prints all over this one. Fancy Bear is also said to be snuffling around embassies and other diplomatic targets. Capitol Hill mulls cyber deterrence. The Equifax breach looks worse. And the story of two high profile fraud victims. I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Friday, March 2nd, 2018. The amplification attacks, against which security experts warned earlier this week, turned up in the wild Wednesday. GitHub was briefly taken down. Estimates range from 5 to 20 minutes. Security experts call it the biggest distributed denial-of-service campaign on record, 1.3 terabits per second. The attack used the amplification potential of memcached servers. Akamai, whose prolexic service GitHub used to mitigate DDoS attacks, was able to stop the attack by routing traffic coming to and from GitHub through Akamai's scrubbing centers to screen malicious packets. Fortunately, Akamai had recently put measures in place that enabled it to handle memcached amplification attacks, a problem that has only come to light in recent weeks. This form of attack differs from ones using the more familiar attack tools like Mirai in that they don't depend upon a botnet established by malware infestations. Just spoof the target's IP address and send a few queries to memcached servers, and Bob's your uncle. Too many memcached servers sit out there, facing the Internet and open to exploitation. Some 100,000 by estimates reported by Wired magazine. Until those are closed, other enterprises face the risk of cripplingly large DDoS attacks. Germany, which continues to work on remediation of what's being called an ongoing attack, on a government-dedicated secure network, officially declines to attribute the attack. Their economy minister yesterday said that while there were no indications Russia was behind the hack, it would be problematic if this would turn out to have been the case. Few others are so reticent. The industry consensus is that the attack is the work of Fancy Bear, Russia's GRU. Some members of the Bundestag who've been briefed on the incident are calling it a form of warfare. Fancy Bear has been busy elsewhere, too. Palo Alto Networks reports that it's observing a campaign mounted against diplomatic targets elsewhere in the world. As disturbing as Russian cyber operations have been, CrowdStrike says that, in its view, North Korea remains the greater threat. Dragos agrees that North Korea needs to be taken seriously. The company believes Pyongyang has been working hard on tools to be used against industrial control systems. It also believes the DPRK is sizing up the U.S. power grid as a promising high-payoff target. General Paul Nakasone, nominated to succeed Admiral Rogers as head of NSA and U.S. Cyber Command, thinks deterrence in cyberspace is difficult but essential. He told Congress the opposition must face costs. What costs to impose and how to impose them remain difficult questions to answer. For deterrence to work, you need to have identified something the opposition values and shown that you can hold that value at risk. Classical nuclear deterrence held human beings, whole cities of them, at risk. No one has yet come up with a clear analog in cyberspace. Few advocate lethal attacks on critical infrastructure as part of a new mutually assured destruction regime. So far, deterrence seems to have come down to economic sanctions and naming and shaming. These aren't crazy or weak approaches but they do appear to have proven insufficient. As recent inquisitions on Capitol Hill suggest, the U.S. Congress is in a pretty sharkish mood. It will be up to General Nakasoni to come up with something that will satisfy their appetite for credible retaliation. The Equifax breach, first publicly disclosed last September, has just been discovered to be worse than originally thought, As investigation continued, Equifax determined that nearly 2.5 million U.S. customers not notified during the initial round of disclosures turn out to have been affected. Equifax, which posted an update to the investigation on its site yesterday, is notifying the affected parties by U.S. mail. Finally, don't think it's just the naive and unsophisticated newbies who swallow phishing and other online scams, hook, line, and sinker. FS the Financial Services Intelligence Sharing Group, is widely regarded as one of the more capable organizations of its kind. Yet even so, one of its employees was successfully fished by crooks, who induced the hapless fellow to pony up his email credentials, which they then proceeded to use in phishing other FSISAC personnel. Happily, the imposture was quickly recognized and contained before it spread very far. The ISAC people who received the spoofed round of phishing emails were quick to be suspicious and report the problem. And of course you've heard of Steve Wozniak, one of Apple's co-founders. The Woz himself says he was hoodwinked by someone who bought bitcoins from him a while back. The scammer paid for the cryptocurrency with a credit card, and then, once the seven bitcoins were transferred to his wallet, just went ahead and charged back his credit card. So you can reverse a credit card transaction, but not so a bitcoin transfer, Those are irreversible. So, Mr. Wozniak was left with nada, zippo, zilch. Seven bitcoins would be worth today around $70,000. Be sorry for the Woz, but don't worry. We hear he'll still be financially okay. And good on the Woz for sharing with the rest of us. If you're selling bitcoins, don't take plastic. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He's the CEO at Dragos. Robert, welcome back. Um, We have been working our way through some of the various ICS uh, environments, uh, and today I wanted to talk about advanced manufacturing. What can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about the manufacturing industry in general, it is good to be able to separate it out into different classifications like you did in the introduction. When you think about manufacturing in North America, I think there's something like 7,300 or so like manufacturing shops. That's not all what we're talking about, though, because many of those are not interconnected systems or, or using um, industrial control systems in the way that we are talking about when we think about advanced manufacturing. So when I think of advanced manufacturing, it, it is those environments where they have... Uh, industrial control and they have interconnected systems and they're taking advantage of technology to help their process in uh, in significant way think of like tesla and spacex and pepsi and kellogg let's you know these big manufacturing companies and for them what's interesting ab- about their challenges as well as opportunities for business is Unlike any other industry, they're really going towards the Internet of Things. But it's not the traditional Internet of Things. It's, a, it's an extension of industrial control, so we generally call it the Industrial Internet of Things. Mm. Um, sometimes people get confused and think that IoT and IIoT are very similar. Oh, they're just one letter apart, but they're world apart. You, you basically go from IoT to IT to ICS to IIoT, So kind of a life cycle there. But those advanced manufacturing folks, instead of just having their traditional SCADA-type environments – you know, they've got their control elements and things on the on the factory floors, but they've also got things like robot arms that are you know, connected and they can swing around and there can be safety issues if it's not protected correctly. Maybe even a simple broadcast storm in the network could cause one of those things to malfunction. And is is the human operator outside of like a safety cage, well, that's going to introduce a, a potentially life issue uh, in terms of safety. So for them, they've got this amazing opportunity to take advantage of industrial internet things as well as ICS to be much more effective, efficient, and automated in the production processes than ever before. But at the same time, they have the risk that there are now issues, not only incidental sort of malware and incidental broadcast storm and that kind of thing, but also targeted nature where things can occur to stall or disrupt the process You know, the factory lines sometimes have a very, very tight schedule on when they're producing like the Tesla, as an example, you know, they're very much uh, pushing full steam ahead. Um, But they also have the consideration that a lot of the intellectual property is not just stored in the IT environment. The actual implementation of how you're making devices and configuring them together, and the efficiency to which you're achieving, in of itself is intellectual an property, and a lot of that's contained down the industrial networks. And so, an adversary getting into those locations, espionage is a significant challenge for them. So, when we think of electric and oil and and wind and these other water and these other places. There's issues and there is espionage, but there's a very like military focus for a lot of foreign nation states on projecting foreign power. When you think of manufacturing, that is also true, but there's also a major component of intellectual property that they're trying to address. So they also have some unique threats in doing so. So while they have a, a great opportunity in front of them, making sure that they can identify and understand and protect all those new thousands, tens of thousands of internet, not really internet connected, but inter- interconnected um, industrial uh, IoT devices that is a challenge that they're they're now trying to adapt and and meet.
1: Robert M Lee, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program with the largest network of trust centers? That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is Marcus Harris. He's a Chicago-based global technology attorney at Saul Ewing, Arnstein & Lair, LLP. Our conversation centers on recent news that software companies like SAP and McAfee are allowing Russian government entities to view their source code, and why, as a software litigation expert... He thinks that is a bad idea.
0: This has been going on for probably, oh, I would say, at least a, a couple of years, where in order to gain access into the the Russian market, um, which is a, a you know a multi million dollar market that's incredibly desirable for companies like SAP, Semantic, McAfee, Oracle. Um, to enter what the Russians are doing as a requirement of entry into their marketplace. They're requiring that software companies provide these Russian entities, which are typically agents of the Russian government, either explicitly or implicitly, to have access to the source code of the software, with the pretense being that the Russians want to review the, soft, the software source code in order to make a determination as to whether it has any vulnerabilities in it.
1: Is there a, a reasonable argument that they can make that uh, this is a, an anti-espionage uh, tactic, for example?
0: I, I, and I, I think they have made that argument, and I think it's, it, it's certainly a reasonable argument. But, you know, where, where that argument starts to become suspect, I think, is when... The software is going to be utilized in really a non-governmental application. So, if it's if if that software is going to be utilized in a business that really has um, very little dealing um, with a Russian governmental entity, I don't see what the purpose of any kind of a substantive source code review would be. So, I think you know if they're going to pin their hat on. Uh, an argument that, hey, this is, this is important because we need to make sure that, you know, our governmental interests are not going to be compromised, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. The farther removed you get away from actually utilizing that software in a government entity.
1: And so what's the risk here? If this is a consumer software or something that people are using to run their businesses, it's not a, a military situation or anything like that. What is the downside for us?
0: Well, I I think there are a number of risks. And I think I I actually do think that, you know, there are really at least two substantive arenas where this becomes risky. And the first is certainly from a national security perspective, you know, you've got Bill McDermott in a meeting um, a couple of weeks ago with President Trump touting that. Um, And Bill McDermott, by the way, is the CEO of SAP, um, which is one of the companies that has provided the Russians with uh, the ability to access and review their source code. Bill McDermott is sitting there um, in the White House touting that both the Army um, and the Navy utilize the SAP software in their operations. So, from that perspective, I think certainly it's a national security issue. But I think from a general business perspective, I think there's a lot of vulnerability and a lot of risk that any business owner that utilizes enterprise software um, needs to be aware of. And, and that's a very large number of businesses. I mean, you know, enterprise software today is very much the backbone of um, the way modern business is conducted. And I would, I would bet that virtually all companies of any size um, are going to utilize an enterprise resource software application, whether it's in the cloud or on-premise and to the extent that your vendor has made its code available for review to a hostile government entity, like say the Chinese or the Russians, in the case of China in particular, that that country doesn't have a good track record of protecting intellectual property, um, and actually has a track record of commercial espionage, um, you know, trying to obtain proprietary information information, so that it can utilize in its own um, for its own economic interests. I think that's a big deal because I think then what happens is that you don't know what the substantive risk associated with using that software could potentially be, and I think you have to take reasonable steps to safeguard yourself from at least the possibility that your vulnerable information, your trade secrets, your proprietary information, your confidential information could be vulnerable. Um, to a greater extent than it would otherwise have been, had these companies not provided, you know, the 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 key to the to the factory shop to these hostile government entities. So I think it's a huge risk.
1: know, I remember. I, I think it was back in the '90s when um, the U.S. government classified certain types of encryption as munitions, so it was illegal to export them. Um, do you think we need that sort of oversight where the code behind some of these software packages? Uh, uh, be, be, the uh, the distribution of it gets oversight by the feds.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I think I think it, it, the example that you raise is a good one because you know there's all sorts of regulations asso- associated with encrypted software, depending on the type of encryption. Um, you know, there's regulations as to what countries that particular piece of code or product can be exported to, and I think there needs to be a very deep dive into. what kind of government regulations need to be applied to this type of scenario. I think if there are certainly going to be government entities that are utilizing software, where that software's source code has been disclosed essentially to the United States' enemies, I think certainly there needs to be regulation of that, and it needs to be prevented or at least managed very carefully. I think it becomes a little bit more difficult to tell these companies what to do with their source code to the extent that it's not something like encryption where it can be readily used against the country's interest, uh, the United States' interests. But I certainly think that this kind of blatant review for the purposes of um, understanding the software, understanding its vulnerabilities, under the guise of protecting, you know, the Russian government, for example, but really for the purpose of um, facilitating hacking and the like. I mean, some of these government entities on the Russian side that actually access the software or the source code are some of the same government entities that are allegedly responsible for hacking into the DNC's email system. So, you know, there's a a substantial risk, and I think government regulation needs to come, and it needs to come quickly in order to, to manage this process.
1: That's Marcus Harris. He's an attorney with Chicago law firm Saul Ewing Arnstein and Lair, LLP. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed.